We need to pick up where we left off uh, last week. Um, you know, one of the things about going through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is um, I'm not really a topical teacher. I teach expositionally, verse by verse, through the Bible. But um, the end of the book of Zechariah is sort of topical in nature. It's really all about Jerusalem and the future of Jerusalem and what God has uh, in store for the people of Jerusalem, the Jews. And it's an important passage and it does affect any one of you that are Christians here today. Um, it's something you should know about according to the Bible. Uh, remember, the Bible says don't be ignorant about several things. One of the things you're not supposed to be ignorant of is um, God's plan for Israel, especially as it relates to Israel and the Jews in the last days and the end times. And that's why we're camping out in this. We're not really camping out, we're just continually going through the Bible, but we begun sort of the introduction last week. What's the big deal about Jerusalem? That's what we talked about last week. And I went over the history of uh, you know Jerusalem and kind of covered, maybe for some of you, it was like going back to those um, you know boring history classes you had in college or high school. Um, but it, it, to me, it's exciting because the city of Jerusalem is a supernatural place. God says, that's the city with my name on it and that's where my people are and I'm gonna rule and reign from Jerusalem for all eternity. Like this is an amazing thing in the world that we, we all kind of sit back and marvel. Why does the world even care about Jerusalem? What's the big deal? The only thing that really makes Jerusalem a big deal is God chooses Jerusalem above all cities of the world. And so we have the advantage of the Bible to tell us why there's so much tension around Jerusalem and what's going on there. And we looked at the history last week. Today, we'd like to kind of look more what Zechariah has to say about the future of Jerusalem. What's gonna happen? How's it gonna go down? Um, why is it important? We'll continue that discussion. I love the Bible for its prophecy, the, the, the telling of future events. You know, if you just take the Bible, um, you'll be much more informed than everybody else. If you just take what the Bible says, the future is going to hold. Um, for example, sometimes people say, Brett, you, you're not very, you know, um, careful and conscientious about global warming. Well, what is it? Global warming, climate change, like people that talk about the science of climate change and all that. And um, the reason I'm not super hyper uh, crazy about that, I'll tell you why. First of all, I do believe we're to be good stewards of the earth and not to trash the planet. Of course, that's, that's obvious. Um, it's, and it's bad if we do. But um, at the same time, the Bible gives me great confidence that the Lord's gonna hold things together until he doesn't. Um, what do you mean? Well, like, for example, maybe jot this down in your notes if you're uh, dealing with this question all the time. But biblically speaking, I'm not even talking scientifically, but biblically, Genesis 8, 22, the Lord says this, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Um, the Bible says we're gonna have the seasons and it's gonna happen until the earth, as long as the world, earth remains. Well, what if it doesn't remain anymore? Well, that's definitely gonna happen. Bible says the earth is gonna melt with a fervent heat. So I do believe in global warming. It's just gonna happen instantaneously and it's gonna be in a moment. Uh, read Second Peter, it's very clear. Um, so I'm not saying we trash the planet. I'm not talking about irresponsibility, but I also believe there's a so-called scientific narrative out there that I don't really see lines up with the Bible. Um, and I take the Bible over science. By the way, um, what I'm amazed at is how much the Bible lines up with science. And I've done whole studies on the Bible and science, uh, but I'll have to resist that temptation to dive into that right now. But what we're dealing with here is the Bible telling us how it's gonna go down in the future with Jerusalem. Now, what should 
the you know church be thinking about or talking about? Well, as it turns out, the Bible explains what it's gonna look like in the last days of the world and the second coming of Christ and the conditions around God's timepiece. You might call Jerusalem the epicenter of Bible prophecy. And that's why it's so important. We looked at that last week. But let's review our verses that we looked at last week and then we'll dive further into it. Zechariah chapter 12, especially verse two and verse three. Let's take a look. The Lord says there through Zechariah the prophet in verse two of chapter 12, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Now, some of you might say, Brad, I come from a church or a pastor or a ministry that doesn't teach Bible prophecy, but they say, Jerusalem, all those prophecies have come to pass. The Bible's prophecies are all done. And they think you're wacko, Pastor Brett, uh, because you believe the future is still in these Bible prophecies. Well, here's the thing. Um, a lot of churches have taken that posture, sad to say. Um, they'll say, yeah, you know, all this from Zechariah took place in AD 70. We talked about that last week. Remember when Titus, um, you know, attacked Jerusalem and crushed Jerusalem in AD 70? And a lot of these preterists and all-millennial view people, they all say, yeah, all this stuff has already happened. The problem? Um, that's not really being honest. And, and you'll never hear those guys teaching through the book of Zechariah because there's some uncomfortable verses like the ones we just read, then make you realize this isn't something that happened in history. Question, has there ever been a time in history where every nation of the world went against Jerusalem as a city? Because that's what our text says. Let's, let's review this, look at it. Look at the verse says, it says in verse three, and in that day shall Jerusalem be a, a burdensome stone for all people, all people, and all that burden themselves will be cut in pieces. Now check this out, the last phrase, verse three, and all the people of the earth, be gathered together against it. Has that ever happened? Well, no, nothing even close to that. Um, the Romans, when they crushed Jerusalem, it was just Rome. There wasn't, wasn't all the nations of the earth. It was just Rome. And by the way, while Titus was crushing uh, Jerusalem, the Romans didn't even know it was happening. It was not a big deal at that point. It became a big deal when Titus brought back almost 100,000 slaves from Jerusalem into Rome and also a bunch of the gold and spoil from the, de the destruction of Jerusalem. It became an event. They even built an arch, the Arch of Titus in Rome. It still sits there to this day. And on the Arch of Titus, you see them, you know, the soldiers hauling off the menorah of the Jerusalem, uh, you know, temple and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, it's definitely a big event in history, but it wasn't all the nations of the world. There's never been a time in history where all the nations gathered against Jerusalem but what's interesting about the days you and I live, what we're watching today, is most of the nations of the world hate Jerusalem, hate the Jews, and really are gathering against it. Uh, I wanna show you what I mean as far as the future and what the Bible says about this. Now, um, one thing you gotta remember, um, you know, when, when it talks about the nation here in our, our scripture, it says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. The word trembling, in some of your margins, it reads poison. It's like drinking a cup of poison. If, you, if you're trying to deal with the issue of Jerusalem in the last days, the nations that do that, 
drinking a cup of trembling. It's, it's an idiom of the Jews, by the way. Remember when Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane? He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Um, the idea of drinking the cup means you're dealing with something often that you don't wanna deal with, but the nations will try to handle or drink the cup, if you would, of trembling of Jerusalem. And those nations that do it, well, it says here, um, the Lord's gonna uh, cause it to be a problem. In fact, the people are going to injure themselves. In fact, if you remember last week, I showed you the New International Version of this says, all who try to move it, Jerusalem, will injure themselves. Or the English Standard Version says, all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. You know, massive worldwide hernia we talked about last week. The people that try to lift the issue of Jerusalem. Um, and this is at the end of time. We know that, and I'll show you the context of that. So really this passage um, tells us a lot about what's gonna happen as far as Jerusalem in the last days, the second coming of Christ, and I wanna show you that. Here's some of the notions that you should be aware of. Number one, one thing that we learn here in Zechariah is all nations will, will tr attempt or try to deal with the problem of Jerusalem. What's the problem? Well, I showed you the problem last week. The Arab-Israeli conflict, the world saying the Jews are occupiers there in Jerusalem, that they don't deserve to be there. Um, the world is saying at least chop Jerusalem in half. One of the leaders of that narrative, along with so many other nations, is our own president right now. He's get, getting ready to head. He just delayed his trip uh, yesterday. I guess he's moved it from June to July sometime. Now he'll be in Jerusalem. But a lot of us that know this president, he's got you know a long history of really being anti-Jew, Israel, wanting to chop Jerusalem in half, going back to the 1967 borders. We talked about that uh, last week. So if you're, if you're missing out on all that, you missed last week, you'll need to kind of review what we talked about last Sunday. But, um, but we're watching the nations really turn against the Jews and Jerusalem. Even though, like I said last week, the Jews bought the land, they were given the land back after World War II and the Holocaust, and God gave them the land. I mean, what nation of people can say that? Meanwhile, the world saying the Jews have um, no right to parts of Jerusalem. The, the, the Arabs, they're not saying parts, they're saying all of it belongs to the Arabs and they want it all, not just part, not just half. Um, but the nations that try to deal with Jerusalem, they will surely hurt themselves. Um, and that's really what we're gonna see here. So um, with that all said, uh, Brett, why are, you, why are you saying all the nations are against? Well, it, it's proven in some facts. Uh, here's a fact, um, the United Nothing, I mean, United Nations, um, they're constantly passing resolutions against the Jews and against Israel, calling them all kinds of things, uh, you know. But one of the things, like, like here's an example, you know, from just seven months ago, uh, the United Nations, there was a big vote. Um, 129 nations, according to the Jerusalem Post, uh, this, and by the way, the world doesn't even know a lot of this stuff is going on, but 129 nations ignore Jewish ties to the Temple Mount, call it solely Muslim. Um, to say that the Temple Mount is solely Muslim is one of the most ignorant uh, uh, statements or beliefs that anyone could ever imagine. Um, when did the, uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem become a holy site of Islam? Most of you were, some of you were alive when that happened. Remember Yasser Arafat, the guy I showed you last week? His grand uncle, uh, the Grand Mufti, um, he was the one who declared Jerusalem the third most holy site in Islam. 
It was somebody that lived in a time period that some of us were even alive. Um, it's a new thing. Uh, and like I mentioned last week, how many times is Jerusalem and the Temple Mount mentioned there in the Quran? Zero. Uh, how many times is Jerusalem mentioned in the Hebrew Bible? 800 times, more than 800 times. But the United Nations voted, is, it, is there any Jewish link to the Temple Mount? Um, and anybody with half of a brain and an archeological understanding of what the Temple Mount is, um, it's, it's very, very Jewish. It's not Muslim really at all. The Islamic part of the Temple Mount happened many, uh, just not that long ago in centuries, last several centuries. So last Sunday was Jerusalem Day, the flag march. And this is, this is a picture from last Sunday. There was some Jews. Oh, they look pretty, they look horrible. Look at their rioting there. Um, as they're, this is literally the Jews standing. They're just somberly standing on the Temple Mount, which infuriated the Muslims that the Jews would stand on their um, you know, not, they don't want to call it the Temple Mount. Um, they, they, uh, they believe that this, this Temple Mount belongs to them and the Jews have no right to that Temple Mount. So instead of calling it the Temple Mount, the United Nations called it the Al-Haram Al-Sharif uh, by its Muslim name. And as part of the, the text of the Jerusalem Resolution, um, it's a push by the Palestinian Authority to say, um, kind of rebrand Jerusalem uh, from Judaism to uh, exclusively an Islamic site. Now, the United States was one of the 11 countries that voted against that, thankfully. Um, but we still you know, lost. But the United States said this, um, the omission of an inclusive terminology for the site, uh, the Temple Mount, um, it's sacred to three faiths. Uh, the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims, and was of real and serious concern. So we voted against that 11 to uh, 129 with quite a few abstentions. Another resolution in the United Nations, 148 countries to nine. Uh, think about that. 148 countries in the world voted on the peaceful settlement uh, of Palestine question. And it was an, um, a resolution that, that said, we demand that the Jews in Israel withdraw to the pre-1967 borders, uh, that the international community refused to render assistance to settlement activity. Um, it also called for an international peace conference in Moscow. So um, basically this resolution passed by uh, 148 to nine. Do you realize there's 148 countries that are saying, Jews get out of that part of Jerusalem. You have no right to be there. So when last Sunday we were talking about Jerusalem on Jerusalem day and the flag um, march, um, Jews marched, uh, but it became somewhat of a conflict because um, you know, the Jews were marching through Jerusalem and the Palestinians don't like that. Um, now here's the thing. Do you understand? I hope all of you understand how easy propaganda is. Um, and I hope you're really careful with pretty much everything you see because um, it's so easy to shape things and the world just believes. I'm gonna show you an example of propaganda video from the, the Palestinian side of, of their, their side of the story. Um, and it starts here from last week. This is from last Sunday when I was talking about this, um, this horrible flag march of these Jews. Um, very serious music. Each year, thousands of Israeli far-right groups um, doing a so-called flag march, uh, singing songs, waving flags. 
Well, and then they go on with more of the red about what these Jews were doing as they were marching through the streets of Jerusalem, celebrating 1967. Um, you know, this is what they were doing. This is what we talked about last week. This is very serious provocation. And what the Israelis are doing is trying to consolidate the annexation, the illegal annexation of East Jerusalem, which was illegally also occupied in 1967. So this is a fight between those who want Jerusalem and Palestine to be free, and those who want to keep us under oppression and the system of apartheid and occupation. We want freedom. We want the end of the system of, of racial discrimination and apartheid. We want to save our religious sites. We want freedom of religion for everybody. And we refuse the Israeli measures and we will resist them with everything we can. We will never accept to be slaves of a system of occupation and apartheid. So this is that classic, you know, Al Jazeera TV, uh, you know, American version. Basically the classic argument of, you know, naming something apartheid. Now, um, hopefully the world really knows its definitions better, but the sad thing is they don't. Um, when you think of apartheid, where do we typically think? Anybody? South Africa, right? And, and apartheid uh, included laws, uh, you know, prohibiting populations of different races, you know, from living together, laws codifying political censorship and repression and segregation through every aspect of life. You could talk about apartheid and its evils, um, but like it was radical. For example, you know, the Mor Immorality Act made it illegal for a white South African to have sexual relations with non-white South African. Uh, these were the type of laws that made up apartheid. In Israel, there's no equivalent to apartheid that we see in South Africa. And this guy, you know, Mustafa makes this de defense that, you know, the Israelis are committing apartheid. Um, the problem is that's just rhetoric that's not true. Um, what's true about Israel, and, and I've spent a lot of time in Israel, and I have Palestinian friends, and let me say this, not all the Jews are behaving well, not all the Palestinians are behaving well, but sadly, this is a kind of a more of a world problem, and the world is using the Palestinians as pawns, sadly. A lot of the Arab nations are using the Palestinians as pawns. Um, the Jews are not always acting rightly, However, Israel is a nation in which Christians, Muslims, and Jews have access to all the holy sites and government services as equal citizens under the law. If anybody actually is prohibited in Israel, it's the Jews from going to the Temple Mount. To them to go to the Temple Mount is a very sketchy and uh, frowned upon sort of deal. Um, so, uh, you know, Arab Muslims and Christians serve as civil servants. Um, as politicians um, in the Israeli Knesset, which is basically the Israeli parliament, um, Arab Muslims and Christians serve as judges on the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, every Israeli citizen has the right to protest, organize, publish, whatever they'd like. None of these things were possible for non-white South Africans living under apartheid. So to compare it to apartheid is just rhetoric that makes the world furious at the Jews, those apartheid Jews occupying um, Jerusalem and the West Bank. Israel, for the truth of the matter, is Israel's the only truly free country in the whole Middle East. But this kind of you know, propaganda that you see out there is causing the world to turn against Israel as the evildoers, the occupation of Jerusalem. And by the way, this, this, this is all terminology, those occupiers. It'd be like if the Canadians attacked Montana 
And they took over Bozeman, Montana. Oh no, Bozeman's gone, the Canadians. Oh, Canada. And suddenly, you know, whereas America's like, hey, wait a minute, Montana belongs to us. So we attacked the Canadians and we win because they turned all their guns into Trudeau. And so we, <laughs> so we beat them back, uh, gets back to the old borders of, North, of, of Canada and we take Bozeman back. And then the world frowns on the Americans and says, Americans have taken over Bozeman and they're occupying Bozeman. It's a very similar sort of comparison. The, the Jews, and if you doubt that, you have to go back to last Sunday and the history of the Jews in Jerusalem and what actually has happened there. To call the Jews occupiers, uh, to call them um, committing apartheid is a rhetoric that, that the Muslim world is using, but it's really just rhetoric that the world is gobbling up. And because of that, the world is beginning to more and more hate the Jews and be furious. That's why you see all these United Nothing resolutions uh, being voted on over and over again against Israel. You'll rarely see a, a resolution against North Korea or China or some of these other bad actors, but you constantly, uh, resolution after resolution against those Jews in Israel and in Jerusalem. And it's, it's, it's ramping up. Anti-Semitism is ramping up from all the nations around the world. And that's, that's not just me saying that. That's just look, up, look it up. It's easy to find. One of the number one nations, by the way, that are leading the charge uh, against Israel and Jerusalem are the Iranians. Iran has not even pulled any punches. I mean, can you imagine a president of a nation saying something like this? We wanna drive the Jews into the ocean and we're gonna you know, blow the Jews and Israel off the map. Um, we're gonna kill death to the Jews, death to Americans. Like these are kinds of uh, rhetoric uh, statements made by the president of Iran. Um, the Iranians, um, the, I should say the religious leadership of Iran, I think there's a lot of Iranians that are just nice people that wanna try to live peaceably, but it's the leadership uh, after the Islamic revolution in the 1970s uh, that changed the leadership of Iran to be wacko, totally wacko. The problem is the Iranians are supporting Hezbollah down, uh, up in the north in Lebanon that are uh, uh, haters of Israel. They finance the Hamas down in the south. And the Hamas are in Gaza firing rockets, thousands of rockets over the border uh, constantly from the south into Israel. The Iranians fund Hamas, Hezbollah, and all the other proxies that they really wanna uh, wipe out uh, Israel. So Israel's got a problem. Israel is the size of New Jersey. And the Iranians, they wanna blow Israel off of the map and they haven't even tried to hide that. Meanwhile, this week, as we mentioned in the Prophecy Update on Friday night, um, it's, it's not shocking news, but it is finally here to know. Um, this NBC article is just one of many. You can look this up. Everybody's, uh, you know, the atomic agencies are all saying Iran has finally enriched enough, you know, highly enriched uranium for at least one nuclear bomb. Um, uh, according to Daryl Kimball, um, of the Arms Control Association think tank, he says, the time it would take for them to do what now can be measured um, in days, not in months or weeks. In other words, they're just days away from getting a bomb. Now the Jews have been for the last year or so doing all kinds of secret Mossad type ops at some of these type facilities, um, at these nuclear power plants and some of the underground nuclear facilities. The Jews have been doing these kind of covert attacks 
And the world knows it's the Jews. Uh, the Jews aren't saying, yeah, we attacked them, but everybody kind of knows. The Jews are the ones who said, we cannot let the Iranians get a bomb. Um, now, the world's saying this week, they, they have a bomb now. So what, what are the uh, Israelis gonna do? Well, this is interesting. We mentioned this again on, on Prophecy Update, but um, the, one of the large, this is the largest IDF drill that ever took place in the history of Israel uh, was just wet, wrapped up just recently. Um, uh, and it's kind of an interesting operation. This Jerusalem Post article uh, talked about how all of the Israeli Defense Force branches air, ground, naval, um, as well as intelligence and logistics, um, did the biggest uh, operation in the history of, of Israel. And, and it was a unique operation of training for more of a long range kind of attack, which the Jews have not really done that. Most of what the Jews tend to do is more of defensive in nature. But the world is kind of holding its breath, realizing the, the, when the Jews train like this, um, man, it means they're, they're training for something real. Um, the IDF um, concluded uh, on penultimate week, the chariots of fire, largest training exercise in Israeli history, um, simulating all out war on many fronts aimed at strengthening uh, the country's defenses and resilience on its home front, as well as increasing the effectiveness of long, longer range uh, warfare. Um, the, the last week of this uh, operation called uh, Operation Lethal Arrow, uh, the drill included uh, Israeli Air Force branches, fighter, cargo jets, drones, helicopters, defense, air defense systems, special forces, all which operated with the support of technical branch. Uh, everything from refueling midair, they did all kinds of stuff for more of a long range kind of attack. And many people believe that the Israelis are planning to attack Iran soon, like not just secret Mossad attacks, but a full-on uh, you know, conventional warfare kind of attack. Now, some of you might say, well, who are the Jews to tell the Iranians they can't have a nuclear weapon? Lots of countries have nuclear weapons. Well, as it turns out, you're right, that's true. Um, you know, the estimated global nuclear warheads around the world, it's, it's shocking. Now, uh, the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, or uh, NPT, um, there's nations participating, trying to curtail the increased number of, of nuclear weapons, but still, it's a little bit ridiculous. The United States, we have 5,550 nuclear warheads. The Russians have 6,257 nuclear warheads. And by the way, they have the new one called Satan II. Uh, the Russians love their new Satan II missile. Did you hear last week one of the mouthpieces for Putin was slamming the pulpit and yelling, we could take the east coast of the United States out with two Satan II missiles and we could take the west coast out with two more. Uh, just four missiles would wipe out the United States. Like that's what he was claiming. Is that dangerous? Should anybody be worried that there are nuclear powers talking about you know, destroying? Now, what has kept all these bombs you know, we have around the world from people using them? Well, the answer is something called mutually assured destruction. Um, and it's kind of this thing that should make you feel sort of happy, but freaked out at the same time. The reason nobody's blown each other up yet is because everybody will be blown up. And everybody knows that. If the Russians wipe out the United States, then the rest of the world will wipe out Russia and then everybody's gonna wipe everybody off and everybody dies on the earth. Um, that's not a good plan. Um, unless you're nuts. That's why some people are worried about Putin. Is he nuts? They're worried because the rhetoric doesn't sound like the climate after the Cold War where we realize mutually assured destruction is actually freaky. So let's just not even talk about it. 
It's in this past year, the Russians are talking about it, but maybe even perhaps for the Israelis, more concerning is the Iranians getting a nuclear weapon. Now you say, well, what, what, what's the big deal? Why can't Iran have a nuclear weapon when all these other nations uh, have weapons? Well, the problem is Iran, not only are they not afraid of mutually assured destruction, but these Shiite Muslims of Iran, they actually believe in a eschatological view that is a end times belief, just like we Christians have belief about the end times. The, the Shiites believe in this 12th Imam who's gonna come during a time of great bloodshed, chaos, and disaster. And you see the concern of the world and, and those that study the political science and the geopolitics side of this, the reason the world doesn't want Iranians to get the bomb is because they might use it. And, and, and all caution to the wind. Who cares about mutually assured destruction? That's the way they're gonna get the Mahdi, the 12th Imam, to come um, back. And that's kind of the eschatological worldview of the Iranians. So the world is saying, man, we can't let that kind of a craziness get a nuclear bomb. But the problem is with our peace accords and you know whether we're in the peace agreement and the nuclear uh, agreement with Iran or not, hasn't made a difference whatsoever. And so the world sort of holds their breath. Meanwhile, they leave Israel to figure it out because Israel is target one for the Iranians. They wanna blow Israel off the map. So the Jews are practicing and readying their army to make sure that the Iranians never really get a bomb. And here the experts are saying they're days away. It makes you wonder, are the Israelis gonna attack Iran uh, we don't know for sure, but people are concerned. In fact, Israel just the day before yesterday, um, what is today, the fifth? Is today the fifth? Yeah, so um, just a couple days ago, June 3rd, um, again, Israel goes out on um, you know public statement warning over nuclear uh, program of Iran. The prime minister, Naftali Bennett, warned the head of International Atomic Energy Agency Friday that Israel was prepared to use its right to defense to stop Iran's nuclear program. Bennett warns um, that, um, uh, Bennett's warning is a re reiteration of Israeli vows to do whatever it takes to stop Iran from obtaining a nuclear bomb. Now you say, okay, great, so whatever, the Israelis are gonna attack Iran, whatever. But question, right now, who is Iran's number one ally? Anybody? Russia. That's a, that should be a problem <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a Bible-believing Christian and you know Bible you know, prophecy. The Bible talks about how in the Gog-Magog invasion of, of Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's gonna be a confederation of nations, including Iran, which is called Persia, and um, Gog and Magog, which is an ancient name of the Scythians who eventually became what we know as the Russians today in some of their states. Um, but th there's gonna be a confederation of Russia, Iran, Turkey, and a few other um, uh, states that are gonna come and attack Israel and especially head toward Jerusalem. But there'll be a, 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 um, a war like no other, a Gog-Magog war. And we're not gonna go into that fully today, but. But that in conjunction with what the Bible says about the last days, we're seeing these nations sort of posturing very much like Zechariah says. And this is, this is where I think it's important for us to kind of know what the Bible actually teaches. So as, as Israel's readying themselves um, and all these operations, you can look all this stuff up. It, some of the operations they did this last week were kind of amazing. I'm always impressed by Israelis uh, with their, um, with the smallness of their country, they come up with all this high-tech stuff. 
One of the things you gotta commend the Israelis for is their defensive weaponry. They spend a ton of money on defense rather than more of an aggressive sort of thing. For example, one of the most impressive things that United States, we helped Israel uh, create was the Iron Dome system. And if you know about that, it's been around for a while now, but all those rockets that come from Gaza Strip over into Israel, last time I brought a group, some of you guys to Israel with me, um, more than 2000 rockets were launched against Israel while we were there. Now there's a good thing, good news. We weren't down generally in that area where the rockets were being targeted. Uh, we were down, at, I took the group down to the Valley of Elah where David slew Goliath. And while we were there, the, our guide was like, probably shouldn't be here, but, um, but the Lord shall protect us. No, I wasn't, I wasn't. I, but, but one of the reasons nobody's really afraid, even though 2000 rockets are flying over the border is because of the Iron Dome system. Um, and that is this, you know, you can, it's high tech, but it's kind of a digital shield when rockets come over. Um, there's a, a dome of, uh, that sort of targets whatever flies through that dome space and it takes the, the, the rocket out before it hits the ground. And the Jews, over 90%, you know, effectiveness. The other uh, part that's not effective are rockets that are gonna land in a field and so they just let them through. But it's, it's amazing to hear, by the way, the rhetoric of the world, it's not fair. What's not fair? The Jews and their iron dome system. Wait a minute, so you're telling me these guys are shooting 2000 rockets and just because no Jews are dying, it's not fair? Well, Brett, the Jews retaliate. Okay, so you're telling me that they shoot all these rockets, 2000 of them, the Jews protect themselves and shoot rockets back and hit where the rockets are flying from. Because you know, the iron dome system is not cheap. It costs a lot of money to shoot down these rockets. And they don't have just you know, endless accounts of money. So they have to hit the rockets, the, the, the origin of where those rockets are coming. Um, so the world says, that's just not fair. Um, Israel has the right to defend itself. That's what Israel's argument is. But with the Iron Dome system, very expensive. Did you see back in April, Israel just unveiled their newest thing. It's called Iron Beam. Um, you say, well, what's the Iron Beam? Uh, um, according to the Defense Post, um, article, Israel tests their new uh, laser-based air defense system, and it's mounted on a big truck. Um, and let me just show you how this thing works. This is an amazing thing. This, this, this truck sort of unfolds, and if a rocket like that is fired at Israel, um, this, this laser beam, you can't see it in the daytime, the laser, but it, in certain cameras like this one, you can kind of see how it actually works. This laser shoots from the truck and will hit the missile before it hits the ground. It targets everything from even a mortar. Like if you see this mortar of rocket being fired, um, small little rocket, this thing can target that and shoot it out of the sky. It hits anti-tank missiles, mortars, rockets, uh, drones. It can shoot all that stuff. And the Iranians have a whole army of drones, by the way. Um, now you say, Brett, whatever, I'm, we're not into weapons. Well, this, this, the reason this one's kind of cool is I told you the Iron Dome costs all kind of money every time they use it, like you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars every time they use the Iron Dome system. This thing, this laser that they're shooting costs $3.39 every time they use it. <laughs> True story, $3.39. Now, to get it set up was very expensive and the truck and all that was expensive, but once the truck's in place, $3.39, that's pretty amazing. The Jews have been quite creative when it comes to all this stuff. So the, the point that I'm making is one of the things that's, that the Bible says is a characteristic of the end times is all the nations will try to deal with the problem of Jerusalem. My point last week was who cares about Jerusalem? What's the big deal about Jerusalem? But as it turns out, all the nations are voting against Jerusalem, 
voting that the Jews leave Jerusalem. The world is mad at Jerusalem. This is a sign of the times. Point number two, not only will all the nations try to deal with the problem of Jerusalem, but number two, we learn from our text here in, in uh, Zechariah, all nations that go against Israel will ultimately be destroyed. This is something for us Americans to remember, especially as you know Biden plans to go there in Jerusalem in July, and I'm worried about what he's gonna say. I'm always worried about what Biden's gonna say. Um, <laughs> in these days where he's getting a little bit older. Um, but especially when it comes to what he says about the Jews in Jerusalem, all nations that go against Israel will be destroyed. Fast forward to Zechariah 12, verse nine. Look at verse nine. Speaking of that time, it says in that, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is the Bible, God saying, when this comes down and all these nations, verse three, are gathered against Jerusalem, when that happens, the Lord says, I will seek to destroy those nations. Question, when God seeks to destroy a nation, what's gonna happen? The nation's going down. Um, do you understand this? Um, this is what the Bible says. All the nations that come against Jerusalem, he says, I'm gonna take them down. This is pretty clear. This does not mean, by the way, that between now and the second coming of Christ that Israel will always be successful and that all the nations that are going against Israel right now are gonna be destroyed. It just means there's coming a day, uh, the day of the Lord in that day, where I will destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So it's gotta be, a, here's, these are the requirements of these last day scenarios. All the nations of the earth have to be against Jerusalem. And then the Lord says, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna seek to destroy all those nations. Point number three, and this gets supernatural. And some of you might even think we're kind of weird to even suggest this. But point number three, Jesus will personally come and fight those nations. How big of a deal is what I'm talking about? Well, this is the, the event that's gonna bring the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Jesus is when the world is against Jerusalem, uh, hating Jerusalem, wanting to destroy Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible tells us even more exactly how that's gonna come down as you flip the page here to Zechariah chapter 14. Turn the page to Zechariah 14. The Bible spells it out what's gonna happen. And the reason this is important to you and me is you and I are witnessing sort of the precursor. We're seeing the nations of the world like no other time in history, hate Jews, hate Jerusalem, against the Israelis in Jerusalem. We're watching that formulate even as we speak. So pick it up in Zechariah 14, verse one. It says, behold, the day of the Lord, uh, the Lord. Now remember, the day of the Lord is defined in the Bible. It's the day when God intervenes in humanity. Right now, humanity's kind of doing its thing and Satan is the prince of this world, the Bible says. But there's coming a time, and I believe the rapture of the church is the event that gets the church out and then the day of the Lord begins and it begins with the tribulation all the way through the millennial kingdom. Um, that's the day of the Lord, when God intervenes on Christ-rejecting sinful world and, he's, and he starts you know, whooping countries. Check it out. Behold, the day of the Lord comes and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem, Zechariah 12, um, and, uh, and they'll be there to, for battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now pause for a second. This is what the Bible says, that day's coming when all the nations are gonna gather against Jerusalem and they're gonna successfully 
do what Biden's suggesting, we need to divide Jerusalem in half. That's gonna be a successful endeavor. But what's gonna happen? Look at verse three. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. When the nations of the world, as they're getting up the guts today to hate Jerusalem and, and the United Nothing voting over and over again, give up half, half of Jerusalem, 1967 borders, that's stuff we're watching right now. When that comes to full fruition and the nations actually gather against to do battle against Jerusalem, the Lord's gonna say, that's it. I'm gonna intervene and I'm gonna take over. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight as he did in the day of battle. Um, by the way, um, concerning the military intervention of the Messiah, Zechariah announced that the Lord will go and fight against these nations. And the word go out there in a military term in the Hebrew Bible, to go out is a technical term for a king to go out to battle, um, interestingly enough, which is the clear meaning here. The Lord is gonna go out and fight as a warrior. You say, Brett, I, I don't know, man. I, I've watched Jesus movies and I see Jesus and he's kind of a skinny hippie. He looks like he was smoking weed and he's a little bit depressed and wearing just a robe. Are we supposed to be scared? Well, that's just the movie pictures of Jesus. And the first coming of Christ, he came as a humble servant, made himself of no reputation, took upon the form of a servant and went to the cross, dying on the, on the cross for the sins of the world. That was his first coming. But don't forget the Lord is, has been a warrior uh, from the very beginning of time. God is a warrior. Jesus, the, the Messiah is not just the lamb who is slain. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Don't mistake that. Um, remember what Moses said in Exodus 15, verses three and four, right after the Egyptians were wiped out? Moses sang this song. He said, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. Can you imagine the Egyptians for a second? They were the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Nobody could defeat the Egyptians. So Moses comes along and says, let my people go, the slaves of Egypt, the Jews. And do you remember what Pharaoh's response was? He says, you know, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? And who is your God that he could move my hand? And Moses basically said, well, let me introduce you to him. And he was introduced, Pharaoh was, by the plagues of Egypt. Can you imagine how totally destructive those plagues would have been? First of all, you know, you, you get the, the, the Nile River, that's your life flow of water turned to blood. That's a problem if you're in the desert in Egypt and there's blood for water. Um, then you got the, all the plagues. We can talk about the locusts that came and ate up all the crops. That was their food. And if, if there were any crops after the locusts, they were destroyed by hail and the fire that was left by the hail. Well, let's have steaks from our cows. The, remember the animals all were killed by the murrain? So you got the crops, the herds, the flocks, dead. You got piles of dead frogs. You got, um, you know, all these problems. And then to make matters worse on Passover night, the oldest, the firstborn of each home was killed what would that do? Like, let's just for fun of it, show, show of hands, how many of you guys are the firstborn of your family? Raise your hand. Look at that, that's more than half of this group. Half of this group, congratulations, you would have been dead. <laughs> that's what happened in Egypt. So, so, so this is Egypt's, half the people are dead. And now Pharaoh lets the people go because of that. He's finally like, but then he gets mad and says, let's go get him. And so whoever's left with a pulse, 
He takes that part of the army and goes after the Jews. And you know the story, they go through the Red Sea and the Red Sea closes over the Egyptians. And the whole Egyptian army, like Moses says there, were drowned in the Red Sea. You couldn't more soundly defeat an enemy than what God did to Egypt that day. When the Bible says the Lord is a warrior, a man of war, you, you kind of got to take that seriously. Isaiah 42 verse 13 says, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar, and he shall prevail against his enemies. Don't forget, that's part of God's nature. He's a defender of his people and he's gonna come against those nations in the last days that come against Jerusalem. And as all the nations attack Jerusalem and try to chop it in half, they'll be successful. And when Jerusalem's hanging by a thread, back to Zechariah 14, um, what's gonna happen? Well, let's read on in verse four. So it says the Lord will fight, fight as he did, fought in the day of battle. Verse four, and his feet, that says Jesus' feet shall stand that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, an earthquake, and the mountain's gonna crack in half, um, in the midst thereof toward the east, toward the west. And there shall be a great valley and half the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. And then, you know, it talks about how the, G the Jews are gonna flee at that point. And there's gonna be an amazing story, but basically Christ returns second coming when all these nations go to battle against Jerusalem. So is the coming of Christ near? All I know is this. Do you realize how close we are to all the nations of the world hating Jerusalem right now? The United States, we're like one of the few holdouts that are saying, well, we sort of support Israel. You know, when we, in our previous administration, very much pro-Israel. And you kind of think, well, that's not gonna happen in the near future. But one administration away, now, you know, the Jews, if you ask the Jerusalem uh, Jews what they think of the current administration of the United States, they're afraid that, we're gonna cause all kinds of trouble in Jerusalem because our position is divide Jerusalem in half right now. Um, so what's gonna happen? All the nations are postured right now for what this Zechariah passage is saying. But are you suggesting that the second coming of Christ could be near? Well, see, it's my view that the first thing that has to happen is the rapture of the church. Then after the rapture of the church, it'll take seven years to get to the point that we're reading about here. So. From my perspective, it could be at any moment the rapture of the church happens because we're getting closer and closer to the world hating Jerusalem and putting their whole attention against Israel. Um, so the second coming of Christ is very real. And Zechariah talks about Jesus returning to, to conquer against those that are warring against Jerusalem. By the way, where else in the Bible do we read about the second coming of Christ? What's probably the biggest rendering of that second coming of Christ? The book of Revelation. Why don't you keep your finger here and go with me to Revelation chapter 19. Flip over there real quick because this is a, a, um, sort of a parallel passage to Zechariah 14. When Jesus returns, a man of war to fight against those that are warring against Jerusalem and the, all the nations. But Revelation 19 tells it from a little different perspective. Um, Revelation 19 verse 11. John the apostle says, and I saw heaven open to behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. 
And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Now we know who this is. This is a, uh, you know, Jesus in his second coming form as a conquering king. His name is the word of God. It reminds me of John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus in his second coming. And then who's with them? Verse 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are these people in clean clothes that are following him? Us. Why are you given clean clothes? You've been given a robe of righteousness. If you're a Christian, you get to be a part of this. That's why this pertains to you, by the way. You're like, Brett, I don't know, man. Revelation 19, Zechariah 14. What does it have to do with me? Well, if you're a Christian, you're gonna be there. And the question I would ask you, are you gonna be a tourist or are you gonna be a tour guide? Whoa, what are, what's going on? Whoa, we're flying around like, okay, don't you remember this Revelation 19? Some of you are like, what are these clothes we're wearing? Fine white linen because the Bible depicts that as you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Uh, it's a great story, but, but what happens? We are raptured to be up with the Lord or if you kick the bucket on the way home from church, either way, you'll be as a Christian with the Lord. That's the best day of your life, by the way when you're with the Lord, either rapture or death, but you get to be with the Lord and you're there in heaven, the marriage feast of the lamb. Meanwhile, back on earth, the tribulation is brewing. The antichrist, the coming world leader is gonna hate the Jews and he's, the antichrist is gonna be the one to gather the nations of the world even more together against Jerusalem, more than what we're seeing today. They'll unite around this antichrist world leader the Bible talks about. So we're in heaven, the earth gets angry at Jerusalem for those seven years, and eventually they go to attack Jerusalem and wipe out the Jews once and for all. Then, right when Jerusalem's hanging by a thread, Christ returns. No man knows the day or the hour. Uh, we don't know when that's gonna happen, but we're gonna be there with them. By the way, if you're a post-tribber and you believe the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, the problem I have is why do you get raptured? Are you up and they'll meet the Lord and then you come right back down? Uh, what's the point? Will you get some new clothes? <laughs> I believe there's more to it. I believe we're gonna be up away from the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period because the Lord doesn't put his, his bride in the time of wrath. We're up with the Lord in heaven, wrath on earth, and then the Lord comes back when the earth rebels and tries to wipe out Jerusalem. And so let's read on. Revelation uh, 19, uh, you know, we come back in verse 14 with him. And verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword um, that with it, he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God Almighty. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now you say, well, what right does he have to wipe out all the nations of the world? You gotta understand God has given the world millennia to repent of their sins and to not be mean to his people. You gotta remember that the world has hated the Jews. And there's a point where God says, I'm not gonna let that go unchecked. So, you know, the second Holocaust is right here where the nations are gathered against all the Jews in Jerusalem. And the Lord says, I'm not gonna let that happen. And he will come as a warrior, mighty, uh, and check out what happens. There's a big dinner feast. Check it out, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls, the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together for a supper of the great God. What, birds at dinner? Yeah, check it out. Verse 18, bon appetit. 
It says that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the antichrist, this coming world leader, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse. Is that a good idea? You see, you know, Christ coming on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, 10,000s of 10,000s of his people with him. And we are being, we've been given new bodies by this time. If you're worried about that, brother, I don't wanna be in the army. You're gonna be given a new body. Remember, they'll shoot at you and like, you missed, you missed, you missed, as they go through you. Like you'll be indestructible at that point. That's why we don't even read about the actual battle here. Check this out. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth gather together to make war against him that sat on the horse. Bad idea. And against his army, verse 20, we don't even read about the battle, but it says, and the beast was taken with him and the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with, with which he deceived them that, uh, that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshiped the image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse with the sword proceeded out of his mouth with all the fowls of heaven filled with their flesh. Man, that's a pretty heavy story. So Revelation 19, Zechariah 14, all of this is the same story. Nations gathered against Jerusalem, Christ coming with us, 10,000 of his saints intervening. Um, and don't confuse it, that's the battle of Armageddon. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the battle of Gog and Magog, and they're not totally unrelated, but, um, but the, we'll see on Wednesday night how Zechariah explains maybe even the differences between these wars. Um, and if you're interested, you can study Ezekiel 38 and 39 um, separate battles. But, but Zechariah, we're gonna see on Wednesday night where there's gonna be probably nuclear weapon exchanged. Uh, we're gonna read about people that are gonna be in this battle, their flesh shall consume away while they stand on their feet and their eyes will melt in their eye sockets and their tongues will consume away in their mouth. Sounds like something from either Raiders of the Lost Ark or a nuclear weapon exchange. Um, we'll, we'll read about that in Zechariah uh, on Wednesday night. But all that to say, um, remember what you know Jesus said, because you think, man, that sounds horrible and it sounds like the Lord's just gonna come and crush everyone. But the Lord says in Matthew, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, he said, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, for those days shall be shortened. In other words, um, you know, basically the Lord, if he doesn't intervene, there's gonna be no one left on the earth, but the Lord will come intervene and save the elect. I believe the elect's sake is the Jews, but also perhaps some of the tribulation saints that were left during that time. So, this, so you say, Brad, okay, so the stage is set for this. There's no time in history like today where the nations are posturing themselves to say, the Jews have to give up Jerusalem. And the more we see that drum being beaten by the world politicians, the more we should be concerned that, man, we're getting closer to the rapture of the church. It could be happening. Um, I don't know whether to be excited or heartbroken. I'm excited for the rapture of the church, heartbroken that the world is so, so stubborn against God. And, it, and, and it's not just the, the, the Jerusalem issue, it's every other issue that we could talk about in the last days. The world arrogantly saying, we're gonna solve the problem. Um, our prophecy update, I titled it, The Devil in Davos. Davos, Switzerland, World Economic Forum uh, was so crazy. Um, 
you know, Klaus Schwab, this guy who kind of lead and founded this thing, he, he, he made almost biblical statement. He said this, he said, the problem today is there's wars and rumors of wars. And he said, there's disease and famine, food shortages. He sounded like Jesus in Matthew 24. The only difference is Klaus Schwab said, and we, the World Economic Forum, are gonna be, bring the solution. Uh, we are the thinkers. We are the ones who have the power to save the earth. Um, and I believe that that's just part of the plan to get the world to become a one world government, come together using, you know, the, kind of like the, the, the old Tower of Babel days. Same thing, only the modern day version that was talked about in the Bible. Um, we see all these things. Unless those days be shortened, man's gonna do themselves in. Jesus is coming. So what do we do? Jesus told us in Luke 21. He said, when you see these things begin to come to pass, would you mark the word begin in that little verse there? Because it doesn't say when these things come to pass. No, when you see the end time scenarios begin to come to pass, then look up. That's the next thing I'd like to mark there. Look up and lift your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. If you're a Christian and you know your Bible, you know that when the world's getting worse, your heart is broken because the world is lost. But the Lord reminds us, man, but don't forget to look up. Your redemption is drawing near. When I see the evil that's going on in the world, and we can just list so many things. One of the things I'm, I'm shocked that we're not putting people in jail is these people that are pushing transgenderism down the throats of first graders, second graders. They're, they're you know, chemically castrating children. Like this is something that I can't believe the church people are just standing by going, oh, that's too bad. Um, this is something that should be criminal. And, and it's so evil. It's like comes from such an evil place. And yet the world just kind of sits by and eh, whatever. It's just the days we're living. No, I believe that these are the reasons the Lord's gonna come back as a warrior, mighty in battle. There's a point where the Lord's gonna say enough. And I believe the world's pushing those buttons all over the place. But the, the one that's probably the most accurate timepiece we can look at is not all the other things. It's, it's Jerusalem. The, the timepiece, the epicenter. And when you see these things begin to come to pass, which I believe we're watching right now, you and I are living in the most exciting times to be a Christian right now. Uh, this is a day where we should be looking up for our redemption draws nigh. Um, remember, don't be like the evil servant there in Matthew 24 that says, ah, the Lord delays is coming. And yeah, we can, things have been going the way they've always gone, whatever. Jesus said, that's the evil servant. The, the, the wise servant, the good servant is busy, looking for, watching, waiting for the coming of the, the master and he's busy serving and doing what he's called to do. That's what you and I are called to do. Preach the gospel, be bold, share as much as you can, look up for your redemption draws nigh. These are days we're living right now. So there it is. Why is Jerusalem such a big deal? Part one, part two. Uh, uh, hopefully I haven't made you all brain dead by the end of this service. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for your word. It is quite incredible to see Bible prophecy unfold, just like your word has predicted. Watching these nations posture themselves, Lord, is, is so, uh, I think it's become so common that so many people aren't even looking or watching at what's going on, even though your word so clearly articulates what to see and what to look for. Open the eyes of your church, Lord, I pray. I know that so many churches and pastors have just put aside Bible prophecy altogether, but I pray that your church would wake up 
that we'd see the days we're living and act accordingly, that we'd let our lights shine before men, that we'd be radical and fervent as we serve you and walk with you. Lord, forgive us for apathy and just passive sort of understandings of what your word says. Help us to dig and search the scriptures daily to see if what's being said is true or false, Lord. So give your church wisdom, breathe new life in us, Lord. Pray your blessing upon your church today as we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.